Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Scripture reading today is from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside, and he said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Today is the second day in a new sermon series that we're calling Guardrails. These guardrails are a handful of statements that we have come up with, our leadership has come up with, is to act as uh, just boundaries that we believe that God has given us for our community, for us to exist and how we treat each other. These, in, in some ways, are, are going to act as the values that we have as a community. Uh, guardrails keep us safe. It keeps us on track. It protects us from getting off track or when we get distracted and run off the road. It just keeps us moving where we believe that God has, uh, has for us. And today, we're going to talk about our second guardrail, which is this. I know it's exciting. You've been waiting all week wanting to know what the second one is. The suspense is palpable. Here it is. It's the statement right here. It is a sin to bore people with the gospel. That for us as a community, we're going to call it sin to bore people with the gospel. Now, you could say, you, you, you could say, oh, really, I don't remember reading that in the Bible. It's a sin to bore people with the, with the gospel. The word sin, we don't use it much nowadays, but it could simply mean missing the mark. And I think a really a deep-hearted conviction I have is that we have truly missed the mark when we have made the gospel something boring. Not only the presentation of the gospel, but the experience of the gospel. When it's something that is boring, it is incredibly missed the mark. The first off, the problem with that is that Jesus wasn't boring. Can you imagine being a follower of Jesus and waking up in the morning having no clue what he was going to do? Jesus, like, who is he going to upset today? What miracle is he going to do today? What healing is he going to do today? Is he going to flip over tables like he did yesterday in the temple or walk on water like he did last week? Can the guy levitate? I don't know. I mean, think about the adventure of following Jesus, never knowing what the day would hold. I think Jesus was incredibly exciting. It was an adventure to know and to follow Jesus. It's still the same today. It's still the same today. Secondly, the problem with boring people with the gospel is we believe that the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is the most exciting, 
like adventurous, beautiful message ever to grace this world. It's the best news ever heard. Why? Because the creator of the world, the one who knows you inside and out, more than you know yourself, warts and all, loves you through and through. He's crazy about you. He can't stop thinking about you. He, his love is so powerful, it never gives up, it never quits on you. It's vast, it's expansive, it's deep, it's continual. And this God who's created you wants you to not only know him, but he wants you to know him so you can also figure out who you are too. This is really, really, really good news. So yes, we are going to call it a sin when this good news of Jesus becomes boring and stale and just nagging. Why? Because it's truly the best news ever. This guardrail actually comes from a quote from the founder of Young Life. His name is Jim Rayburn. And I want to read his exact words, and here they are. We believe it is sinful to bore kids with the gospel. Christ is the strongest grandest, most attractive personality ever to grace the earth. But a careless messenger with the wrong method can reduce all this magnificence to the level of boredom. And it's a crime to bore anyone with the gospel. Can I hear an amen? amen. Okay. Amen. We so often get it wrong. We so often get it wrong. We so often get it wrong with Jesus. Way too often... This is our picture of Jesus. And what's wrong with that picture of Jesus? Well, he's white, even though supposedly he lived in the Middle East, right? I mean, look at that Scandinavian beauty right there. He's skinny, always skinny, even though the religious leaders judged him as what? A drunken and a glutton. And almost always, he's sad. When you think about pictures that we have of Jesus, almost always Jesus is some stoic, sad, tame man. Why have we made Jesus like this? Why is this our picture of the gospel? When Jesus first decided to step out into public ministry, when he like left his private life and, and stepped out into the public, he went to the temple and said, I need that scroll. And he unrolled the scroll it was written way before the time of Jesus. It was actually in Isaiah 61 that fore, foretold a coming Messiah. And in this passage, it perfectly described who Jesus was. It foretold Jesus and Jesus showed up and he lived this out. He displayed that he was the one that people were waiting for. And in this description of Jesus, the coming Messiah, one of the descriptions is that he would be marked by the oil of joy. The oil of joy. This phrase is repeated through the Gospels as the Gospel writers were trying to describe who Jesus was. He wasn't some stoic, tame, sad, despondent person. He had the oil of joy marking his life and his existence. From this passage, pastors like Charles Spurgeon and you. Eugene Peterson described Jesus as the happiest person ever to live. Why? I think in part it's because his joy was not tinged with sadness, guilt, regret, shame, 
Yes, he experienced deep, deep sorrow, but he was marked by the oil of joy. I heard this quote and it struck with me. Jesus has satisfied the mind and the heart of our infinite God for eternity. If we are bored with Jesus, it is blindness to who he is. The problem is not that Jesus isn't satisfying our hopes of what God could be or the life that God could invite us to. Our problem is that we have maybe become blind to the reality of who Jesus is. That our Jesus is not born. As a disciple, as an apprentice of Jesus, as a follower of Jesus, you are learning how to live from the most joyful person ever to exist. And among many things, he wants to teach you how to experience that joy too. I think our scripture passage of John 2 has a lot to say about this subject. The story of Jesus highlights the surprising nature of who Jesus was and Jesus' gospel. This is actually my favorite miracle. I love this story of John 2 that we just heard. It's my favorite in part because I love weddings. Don't you love weddings? Can't you just imagine yourself at a wedding? Twelve years ago, I, uh, Jen and I got married. On this day, 12 years ago. Isn't that exciting? Yeah. Don't, uh, don't look around for Jen. She's not here today. She's waiting for the 10 a.m., returning to Covington. Just kidding. Uh, but there's so much to love about weddings. I love weddings. I love the awkward toasts. I love the gathering of people from different parts of our life. They just come together. I love the old couples dancing. I love the young kids running around crazy on the dance floor. I love the anticipation, the music. I love the wedding cakes. I love the crab cakes. I love the adornments. I love the moment the groom sees the bride for the first time. Don't you love that? Everyone looks at the bride and they look at the groom. I love the moment. I used to love the moment, actually, when the father hands over the bride. Now, as a father of two daughters, I'm not sure about that anymore. But people, I love weddings. One of my favorite things about weddings is how much effort is put to this perfect moment. And we all know that something wrong is going to happen. Like, we're all hoping that the... the the, the little child with the ring, the ring bearer is going to go rogue. We don't want him to walk down perfectly. We want him to scream. We want him to go crazy. Why? Because even in the midst of this perfect moment, we know that most weddings, there's something that goes wrong. And in Jesus' uh, time, in this story in John 2, something went really, really wrong. The wine runs out. Uh, I want to jump to the end of the story because I think the end of the story is the key to understanding the whole thing. So the end of the story, John 2, verse 11, it says this. What Jesus did here at Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs, the signs through which he revealed his glory and that his disciples believed in him. Now, in John's gospel, the, the important part for me in verse 11 is this word signs. Signs are different than miracles. Jesus did a ton of miracles. But for John, there are a few signs that pointed to something deeper. This encounter, this miracle actually points to something deeper that Jesus wants us to know. 
And I think one of the reasons why John did this is John's gospel was written much, much later than the other gospels. So I think John had the opportunity to sit and to reflect what exactly happened. I like to imagine John on his front porch sipping his coffee early in the morning going, what was that about? Wow. Now, with that wedding, that wedding, those other gospel writers, they left it out. John is the only one that included it. What in the world was that about? And for John, he saw that this encounter, the first miracle that Jesus did, whoa, they missed a sign, something deeper, a deeper truth about Jesus and his ministry. And we might say, really? Out of all the different signs that the Messiah could do, really, is this the most profound thing? Just running out of Pino? Is that really going to be the most powerful sign of the coming Messiah? A wedding not being ruined? Actually, I think what John was doing here is something beautiful. It's poetic. It's deep. It resonates with our life. And it resonates with this guardrail. Wine is a symbol of joy in John's culture. A common saying in the Jewish culture of that day is, there's no rejoicing save with the wine. The fact that they had ran out of wine might have been more than just a a social uh, miscue. I think maybe what John is saying is that this land had ran out of joy. It was barren. So the story goes. Verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Can we just stop and acknowledge that Jesus, the stoic, frowny-faced Jesus, was the type of person that you would want at your wedding. Like he was someone that you would want at the party. That this is who Jesus was. And that is before they even knew that he could turn water into wine. Think about how many he invites he got after that. (laughs) But he was the type of person who knew how to party. In verse 3, when the, the wine had, was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. And Jesus responds, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. So this is not a scripture verse that our kids can quote, right? Woman, why do you involve me? I, I don't think that our kids can, we can imagine them in their room playing their Xbox. You come upstairs. It's time, to, it's time for dinner. As Jesus once said, mother, woman, why do you involve me? Don't you see my hours not yet come? (laughs) Uh, This word is actually, it reads so weird in our culture, but this was the same uh, phrase that Jesus said upon the cross. Woman, here's your son. Summon, son, here's your your mother. It's actually a Maybe not a term of endearment, but it wasn't as negative as we might read here. And Jesus is saying, uh, uh, my time has not yet come. But in the weird thing, for some reason, he acts. And we don't know why. That's another reason why I love this story. There's a lot of things we don't know, a lot of mystery. And so in verse 5, his mother said to the servant, do whatever he tells you. Is this a passive-aggressive moment where this mother says to the servants, my son's about to do something, so you're just going to listen to him. Isn't that right, Jesus? No. I think, he actually, I think Mary actually was wondering, left room for Jesus to act. She was open to see how God could intercede. In verse 6, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. 
Now, since John called this a sign, it gives us permission to draw out some symbolism and meaning. So we're going to do that right now. So what was the deal with these jars? Uh, In Hebrew poetry, numbers were really significant. So there are six stone jars that Jesus calls out. The number six uh, is meaningful in Hebrew poetry as being incomplete. The number seven was completeness. It's, it's like fulfillment. The number six is not quite there. So quite often in Hebrew poetry, the number six would mean uh, give a sign of something that was incomplete. So these jars were incomplete. But what were these jars usually used for? These jars were used for ceremonial washing. Before you could enter into the temple or enter into a sacred feast like this, you would have to wash your hands. It was a type of cleansing. Oftentimes, even now in Middle Eastern culture, they still will do this practice. They would do this with with their utensils as well. So that before they could enter into table fellowship, before they could have right relationship with other people, and in the sacred moment, they would have to wash themselves. Before they could step into uh, this sacred moment with the community, they would have to cleanse themselves. And it was more than just hygiene. It was a moral cleansing. It was a religious cleansing. And Jesus is saying that this is incomplete. By the way, many of us still believe today that this is how we have to act. Before I can step into right relationship with God or with the church, I got to take care of myself. I got to cleanse myself before I can step back into a church community or into a relationship with God's people, I've got to clean my act up. And Jesus is doing something different with this moment. He's doing something with these jars. Watch what he does. Verse number seven. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Another way to say it is they filled them so that they would be overflowing. Awkward, Awkward to carry them. This was around 120 to 180 gallons. It's a lot of water. And then he told him, then Jesus told the servants, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Do we see what this sign was? That which symbolized the need to become pure became a party. That which symbolized the limits of what religion could do to cleanse yourself before you could step in. It was overflowing. That which excluded the unclean invited all with abundance. I think as much as God might be jealous to defend the mischaracter that we have of Jesus as, I think as much as that he grieves that, I think he mourns also the reputation that God's people have in this world. As much as, G- as God might want to correct the, the picture of a sad, skinny, white Jesus, I think that God might also want to correct the reputation of God's people as dutiful, moral police with eyebrows furrowed, living and promoting a self-righteous yet boring life. I think God mourns that. We should be people famous for being the opposite of boring. We should be filled with joy, overflowing. We should be grateful. Why? 
because the old way of knowing each other and knowing God has been transformed. And we've been set free to experience something new. I've said this recently, but I think it's worth repeating it. Our church's name comes from John 15. It's a, it's a beautiful passage, John 15, where Jesus describes our relationship uh, with him. Ours, like us now, here today. And he describes it as a vine and branches. Jesus is the vine and we're branches. And the, the purpose of the branch is to stay connected to Jesus. And when we stay connected to Jesus, Jesus promises that we will have fruit. This is in verse 5 of John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, if you stay connected to me, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. I have told you this so that my joy could be in you. My joy could be in you and that your joy could be complete. Or you could also translate that overflowing that your joy in your life could be filled to the brim, spilling out. The, Jesus wants for our lives to produce the fruit of joy, life-giving, gratitude, joy that fills our life, filled to the brim. I think God wants to take our stone jars of empty, boring religion and transform them into joy, dizzying joy, the type of joy when you consume it. You lose your inhibitions. You jump on the dance floor and you do the Macarena, even though you hate the song. That kind of joy. And what, the reason why I think God wants our lives to have that kind of joy is not only for our own sake, but when our lives demonstrate that that kind of joy, our lives become the sign. Our lives become the sign that this world can see and go, oh, I see something deeper, deeper than just this person who knows Jesus, but that our lives become a sign of what joy could fill other people's lives as well. C.S. Lewis, he once said about heaven, he says this, joy is the serious business of heaven. That this is what God came to bring to this world and invite us to experience for all time is joy. And it, God takes that so seriously. And I think we should wake up to this kind of notion of the gospel. So the story continues. Then the master of the banquet called the bridegroom aside and he said this. He said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guest. This still happens today, does it not? After they've had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. I love this. Because the way of Jesus is different than the way of the world, even today. With Jesus, it just keeps getting better and better. More and more joyful. The celebration just gets better and better. And I just, I just want to wonder if we were to do a poll today, what your response would be. Is right now today, who's bored with Jesus? Who's bored with life? To what degree has the gospel lost that sense of celebration? That, that sense that you can just be moved by gratitude. I've been there. There's seasons in my life where I just, 
man, it just gets stale. It's as incomplete as a stone jar to cleanse myself. I just want to give you just, just want to point at something, a sign within this sign. Do you know who had the most exciting experience that day at that wedding? Do you know who, like, I think whose life really was transformed from encountering? It wasn't the bride or the groom. It wasn't the master of the banquet. I don't even think it was Mary or the disciples, although they saw what happened. I think it was the servants. I think the servants are the ones who went home telling a really good story. Why? When did the, when did the water become wine? Well, like when we read this story, we really don't know. I actually, I love to imagine Jesus when they said, okay, I want you to take some water out and give it to the master of the banquet. That they actually draw some water out and they're like, this is a bad idea. Like, what? they're out of wine, not water. And so they draw the water out, they give it to the master of the banquet, he sips it. And they just wait for him to rail against these servants. How dare you bring me this? But he sips it and he says, well, no, wait, who brought this? Is this really meant for now? Because this is incredible. And the servant's eyes went from afraid, probably hiding off in the corner, the shadow of the room, to delight. And they got to look at Jesus. They participated, just like Andrew said, they participated in Jesus' first miracle, this sign. And the key to this might be the key for us to get out of spiritual boredom, the key to get us out of, this, out of a stale idea of the gospel. And it's to, to remember Jesus' mother's words. Do whatever he says for you to do. Whatever Jesus tells you to do. do it. They could have missed out on this whole experience if they decided, no, 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 this is outside my comfort zone. No, 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 this is a bad idea. Because they were faithful in doing what Jesus said, they participated in this beautiful sign. In verse 9, it points this out. The master of the banquet did not realize where the wine had come from. Though the servants had drawn the water new. I think that for us, that this is calling us to live in a way that we anticipate the adventure of following Jesus. The adventure of following Jesus as we get to know and to follow what God has for us. We get to participate in what Jesus is calling for us to do and participate in joy. And doesn't it make sense that the first sign that happens, happens at a wedding? The gospel is much like a wedding but better than any wedding that anyone has ever been to. Jesus came so that we could be united with him forever. We're two become one. This type of love transforms you. It, it, it transforms you so much that you, you're given a new name, a new identity. Where you are claimed by a love stronger than anything else in this world. Romans 8, Paul said that so beautifully in Romans 8, when he described how this type of love transforms us, just like water into wine, it, this kind of love has the ability to transform us. And I think if there's one thing that's not boring, is being transformed. Here it is in Romans 8, verse 37. Knowing all, all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life 
Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How is that boring news? How is it that there's nothing in this world that's going to separate you from the powerful, transforming love of Jesus? So for us as our community... Our guardrail is going to make sure that we continue to uphold the gospel to be this beautiful, life-giving, exciting, joy-filled message, the best message that the world had ever heard. And if Jesus can transform water into wine, just think of what he can do in your life. Just think of what he wants to do in our community, in our church.